Take your Bibles tonight and turn to Second Chronicles. Our theme this year is Worship Matters, and I want to come back occasionally. Although we spent a lot of time on at the beginning of the year, I'd like to spend at least tonight on it again, just to remind you of some of these truths and how it looks and works its way out in practical lives issues. The story is told of a wealthy man who was a patron of the arts, and he signed three artists to paint a portrait or a picture. And his instructions were simple. He says, I want you to paint a picture, and I want you to title it Rest. And so the three men went away and began to put their thoughts together and think deeply and began to work on their painting So months later, they returned, and the first artist, he unveiled a landscape with a placid, very calm lake in front of it and the mountains majestically in the background, and he said that this was his idea of what rest looked like. The second man, the second painter, he painted an image of a farmer lying in the shadow of a beautiful gray, great haystack shadowed by the sun as it was setting after long days of work, and he was resting from his hard labor. But the third uh, painter, uh, he was different than all the rest of them. His scene couldn't be in some ways more contrasting to the ones that had been unveiled already. said his was a scene of fury and frenzy. It was a great torrent passing over a waterfall and plunging to the ground far beneath. And he said, leaning over the top at the very tip of that waterfall was a small cliff with a very fragile branch on it. And at the end of that branch was a very small little nest with a couple of baby birds in it. And the the mother bird was taking care of and attending to all of their needs right in the middle of all of that torrent of water and the spray and the mist and everything that was going on, this man said, that, to me, is rest. Now, if I asked you tonight, if you have artistic ability, which you may not, um, but if you could, what would a picture of rest, or one titled rest, what would it look like to you? What would it have in it? What wouldn't it have in it? I don't know if you've ever seen this picture. I'm, I'm seeing if it's on the screen here. Have you ever seen this picture? This is a picture of a lighthouse. It's called the Peddler's Lighthouse. And that man is sitting in the open area of that door. And look at the wave around it. I thought of that might be my understanding of rest today. And you'll see it's not because there isn't anything going on because there's a huge wave going on. In fact, that's the title of the picture, the lighthouse and the great wave. Um, But I think that might be some of the third painter's perspective in that picture as well. But perhaps tonight it would be different for you because of who you are, what's going on in your life. Maybe you're a mom here tonight, and I I jokingly thought of this. A a picture of you at rest would be while your kids are frantically running around and your husband's watching TV and ignoring all of it, you are trying to get some sleep on the couch. That might be rest for you. Or maybe you're a businessman and 
everyone on business and you're at the dinner and having a special dinner with all your coworkers and the people and the clients that you're trying to impress and everyone else is talking about all the money that they're going to make and all the wild things they do in their lifestyle while you by yourself a little bit take out your phone and you're looking at pictures of your wife and of your children and you can't wait to get back home. Maybe that's what a picture of rest in your life would be. But whatever it is, the chronicler of this book that we're turning to tonight has a painting a picture of what rest looks like in the life of Joash. It might be a little different from you and I because in his life there was a lot of war, at least at times. And if I can have you turn to 2 Chronicles 14, if you're not there already, I want to show you that the theme from the very beginning of this book, and there's three chapters. We're going to look at 14 through 16, believe it or not. And I want you to underline, and I want you to circle tonight. If you don't write in your Bible, write some notes tonight, and there's going to be a lot of them because a lot of words are repeated and there's a reason for them. And I want to connect them all and put it together and help you get some applications tonight. The first one is the word rest. Chapter 14, verse 1, it reads, And the land had rest for ten years. You can write it down. The rest means quiet, as some translations say. It basically is peace. We might say it this way. There, war, there was no wars going on. In fact, that little phrase, no wars, is used twice in chapter 14, verse 6, and chapter 15, verse 19. No wars. And that's why there was rest. Because there's no one trying to uh, take them over, put them into slavery, or whatever it might have been. He's not done. Chapter 14 and verse 5. Under Asa, it says the kingdom had rest under him. So it wasn't just by coincidence, it wasn't by chance that there was rest. It was based on and connected to the things that Asa was doing as king. Now, you have to understand that that's important if you read the chronicles about the kings because Hezekiah and Asa are the only kings of Judah and all the kings of Judah that are chronicled that have the description as it is in verse 1 and 2 about Asa that he did what was good and right in the sight of the Lord. In Judah, absolutely unique. Only two out of all of them had this description. Asa is one of them. So you know he's a good guy. He's done a great job. And the reason why there's rest is because of some of the reforms that he's making. Third use, chapter 14 and verse 16. Really repetition of verse 1. For the land had rest. And then verse chapter 15 and verse 15 And the Lord gave them rest all around. Now, let me give you the whole picture. They had rest. They weren't having war based on the good reforms of worship and otherwise that Asa was making. All of that is true, but behind all of it, the foundation, the groundwork of all of it, no matter what Asa was doing, is that the Lord was giving it to them. And that is going to be crucial to grasp, and that's why I think they put it at the outset of the story. If you're going to get this story of Asa and what happens to him, you're going to have to find out that whenever you have rest, no matter when it is and what, what's happening, is because the Lord is the source of it. And you're going to find out how true that was because he's going to believe that and practice that at first in his life, but he will not do it his whole life. Because the temptation as a king and why there were so few, many, so few good ones in Judah was because they were ones who imitated the kings of Israel, who only basically had political rest 
And they tried to get it through military might, political means, or by worshiping false gods. So when it says there's rest because of Asa and God gave it to him, it's because he was honoring him. He was honoring him for the reforms that he was making. And you can read them in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and a little bit beyond. He was telling people that you will worship God, the true God, only. So write it down. Rest means peace. There is no war going on. And the reason why that was true is because Asa was doing deconstruction. He was tearing down the altars. Read verses 2, 3, and 4 for you. He was ripping down the altars to the false gods, to the Baals. He was tearing them all down. And he was doing also construction, that he was rebuilding the cities and fortifying them and putting back in place the good things that they needed. So he was getting rid of the bad. We might say New Testament language. He was putting off. He was putting on. He was doing things that were pleasing to the Lord. If you want to, for your further study, let me give you a framework of these three chapters in Asa's life so that you can get everything that you should know about him. His life is framed by three contrasting couplets. The first one is this, two military threats. At the beginning of his reign, chapter 14, we'll see it down in verse 11 in a little bit, he is going to have a battle, a battle that comes to him right in the middle of the years of rest, one that he's probably not expecting. There's a second battle that happens in chapter 16 and verse 7 and following. And that is toward the end of his life in the 36th year of his reign. And that was out of 40 years. So he's going to have his, his whole reign bookended by war. First war and the last war. But that's not the only thing. He also has two seers. Very similar to a prophet, but they don't write Revelation some differences between them. So basically think of them as prophets. But he has two seers who come to visit him. Both of them after he decides how he will respond to the war. And God sends messengers to him. The first time the messenger gives him, Azariah gives him a positive message of encouragement. The second one, not so much. The third couplet is Asa's responses. The first time he responds really well, and we're going to focus on that. The second time he does the exact opposite in response to the war that he did the first time around. And it ends up in disaster. And I would tell you that it ends up being the end of his life because of it. So the battles are important. But I want you to catch this. The first one is huge because the military force he faces... In chapter 14 is a million men from the Ethiopian wars battle. They come, they have a million men, they have 300 chariots. That is, not only do they have, and it mentions that Asa has 300,000 men, and they have a million. So he's outnumbered over three to one, and they have chariots, and Israel does not. And so it's like, not only do they have three times as many people, but they have way higher technology, if I could use that term, in their weaponry. So they are outgunned, outnumbered, outflanked in every possible way. Huge disadvantage in this battle. The second one is a battle between the, Judah and his own people, Israel. And he gets a mercenary, so to speak, the king of Syria, to come over and, and switch sides from the north to the south. And it was not a big battle. They had very equal numbers, if not Asa having an advantage. 
He does a great job on the big one, big war, and he does a terrible job on the smaller threats. Why? We're going to answer that. What would make the difference? Why did he win the battle? And, and, and let me throw one more thing out there before you go into details. He wins both of the battles. He wins. The one that he responded wrongly to, he still wins it. There's a lesson to be learned in all of those things. There are two key words. If we're going to find out the answers of Asa and why he started out so well and ended up so poorly. There are two words and I want you to write them down because they are repeated over and over again in this text. It's the word seek, number one. And rely or relied on number two. So we're going to unpack them and see because they are connected to you having rest. For you having peace. For you having stability in your life. So the first one, seek. And I want you to write down if you take notes. This is the vertical aspect of rest. This is the you and God part of having rest and peace And to say it actually in the text, shalom in your life. Shalom does not mean, it is not just a greeting. It is not just a word peace. It literally means in the text, wholeness. Because when you are whole, it means that everything in your life is all that it should be. It is where it ought to be. That's what shalom means. When you tell someone shalom, you're telling them and asking God to bring the blessing of wholeness on their life. And let me tell you that wholeness means opposite. It's, not, it's something that's not divided. So you'll find in the Psalms, especially 119 and other places in the Bible, they, oh Lord, give me a, and it's translated loyal sometimes, um, a true heart sometimes, but the word is shalom and it means whole. Give me a whole heart to know you. Give me a whole heart to follow you, to love you. Caleb in the Old Testament, the Bible says he gave him that mountain and here's why. Because he followed the Lord and the Bible says fully committed. And it really is the word whole. He was holistically everything about Caleb's life. He followed God. And I want to tell you, that's one of the main reasons why the first response and the second response are so far different. What does it look like when you have a whole heart? What does it look like? Why would God give you rest? Because, write it down, because you're seeking him. The verses are 14.4. And he said that he would seek the Lord and keep his commandments. 15. Stay with me and write these down. 15 and chapter 15 and verse 2. While you're with him, he will be with you. And you seek him and he will be found. 15.2. 15.12. 15.18. All the way through. If you seek the Lord. Seek, seek, seek. Now, to get the context, if you read Second Chronicles in its entirety, you'll know that The word seek is not just a word that shows one direction. It means this. When you seek God, 17.3, it said Jehoshaphat, that he did not, same word, seek the Baals. This is a term that basically means worship. You seek God. You seek to worship him. He's your only God. He's the only one you're going after. He's the center of your life. He's preeminent, we would say. So here's what it's saying. Asa had this type of a worship life. 
He sought only God. He did not seek the Baals like Israel in the north did. He did not seek them for military advantage. He did not seek them for political favor or or rain when it needed to come on their harvest. He didn't seek. He sought the Lord. That was the difference. Read 11.16 and 12.14 and you'll see Rehoboam, who was in the north, did the opposite of that. So what do we make of that? Let me give you this. The first war, if you're going to have rest in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in your heart, the first war you have to win is not the one on the battlefield. It's the one in your heart. The first war is a worship war. That's the first one you have. Why? Because worship matters. It matters to God. It matters to the people of God. Now, Every time this term is used in 2 Chronicles, it's associated with worship, in particular, at the temple. In fact, later on, we're going to see that famous verse that, at least it is, I think, to most of us, in 2 Chronicles 16, 7. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him, King James, true to him, a heart that is shalom. A whole heart. He's looking for that. But his eyes are running to... From where? From the temple. That's why in Solomon's speech of dedicating the temple, he says, my eyes will always be in this place. And he's looking. God is always looking. And what he wants to find out is, are you winning the worship war? Hezekiah believed in this so dramatically that a couple chapters over, if you took the time tonight to flip the page, as I did this week, you'll find an unusual battle scene that's chronicled there. In chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, and I, actually, I'm going to read it for you. Just listen. It says this. First of all, he worships when he finds out he's going to face an army he can't beat. And it says, You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Exact words given to Moses at the Red Sea. Who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem? Do not fear or be dismayed. That's a conquest statement. Tomorrow you'll go out against them and the Lord will, is with you. Jehoshaphat bowed his head and his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping him. See, they got that war right. And because they had, they had already won that war, they were ready to face the public war, the physical war, because they've got the spiritual war right already. So what does it look like when they go to fight? Not like you think. The Bible says in verse 21, Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And he appointed those who should sing to the Lord, and who should, the Bible says, and who should praise the beauty of his holiness, which why we praise tonight. And we went out before the army saying, praise the Lord, his mercy endures forever. Notice the next verse. So when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes. There's a military strategy. I would doubt that America will adopt this. But they sent out the priests and they sent out the singers and they led them into battle. And what were they doing? Singing. They were doing worship songs As they went into battle, they didn't have to fight. They didn't have to do anything. God won the battle. You know why? Because this is how he sees our wars. The first war 
is the one inside that you can't see where your heart is, where God is in worship. See, that's what seeking means. Hezekiah did that. Asa did that. The first thing he did was, we're changing worship. We're going to get our worship right in case we have to face anything else that comes along. Because if we got that right, everything else will go smooth. So what about the worship wars in your heart and in your home? What is your worship or the way your house is run and your marriage is going? What would it indicate or communicate about what you're really seeking? See, are you seeking God or the Baals? If you know anything about ancient Near Eastern cultist identity or idolatry is that they had a bail for everything. For rain, for harvesting, for good weather, for relationships, for marriage. You name it, they had a bail for it. And there's a bail for everything in life. And so Asa said, hey, the first thing we're going to do, our number one priority is realize there's only one God and he is the God of everything. And so Asa said, This is what we're following, and this is our first priority. Can I tell you this? Maybe tonight your marriage has a sign on it. No rest. And you know why? Because you haven't won the worship war in your house yet. You and your wife or your husband, you're not on the same page when it comes to what your number one priority is. So church, for some, probably not most of you, most committed people are here tonight, right? But in a lot of marriages, it's not the case is that this is not the number one in their life. Instead, worshiping self or worshiping money and possessions, education, sports, and on and on it goes. No rest. Maybe there's no rest in your relationship with your children and how they're growing up and maybe even reaching teenagers and older. No rest. Why? Because you've allowed the wrong type of seeking in your house for way too long Along a lot of other things that you're worshiping. See, it was the syncretic, if I could use a big word. Syncretic worship is when you worship God and you worship a lot of things other than God at the same time. And you probably you put them together as one. See, that's what was going on. And Judah, at times, they would worship Yahweh, but they'd also bring in the other gods for special occasions where they thought those other Baals could do a little bit better job than Yahweh. And see, God says, no, it has to be me. You have to. See, you lose control of your children at times because we're losing the war, the real war. Because the real war primarily is not secular humanism, is not all the things going on in our culture, although they are bad and we need to be concerned about them and know how to handle them. But before we get to all the things on the outside, the first war we have to have and the first war we have to win is the one that's going on in worship. It's way more important for you and your children than being accepted or being in shape or being attractive or being a person who makes a lot of money. Asa's seeking... Can I tell you the next thing? Asa's seeking produces relying. Look at chapter 14 and verse 11. This is his response to the first war. And Asa cried out to the Lord. Here's how he's going to respond to a battle he cannot win. Right? On the battle page. He can't win this. Statistics won't allow it. And he's worried about it. And who wouldn't be? Now... In your underlining of this verse, underline Lord and God because his prayer is one verse, but he uses God's name seven times. See, that's what it sounds like when you've already won the worship war. 
You know who God is. And can I tell you this? And you don't just know who he is. It is part and parcel of everything that you do and think. That's where he was. And he says to him, Lord, it is nothing for you. Lord, there's none like you. There's nothing for you to help. And he uses the word in there, if you want to circle it twice, help. And it's the Hebrew word azar. And that's where you get Lazarus, L-A-Z-A-R, azar, right in the middle. And Lazarus's name means God is my helper. And he's using that. He says, you know where I, when you need help, and listen, and I mean the biggest kind of help. When you are so overrun, so overwhelmed, you've got so many problems, and you know that there is absolutely no way that you can handle them. You cannot solve them. It's not happening. You don't have the resources because of your limitations. He comes to God, gets on his knees, and says, you are so not like me. In the ESV, it says, none like you. That phrase, almost every single time in the Psalms and the prophets, is a comparison between the true God and the idols. And so here's what he's saying. I want you to know when the biggest battle that I can't win, and it's going to be disaster if you don't, here's what he says. I need your help. You know why? Because I'm not capable. But I want you to know that it's not changing one thing about my worship of you. You're the only God. There's no one like you. And I'm going to worship you. And I'm not turning to the Baals. I'm not going other places. I'm not doing a political maneuver. I'm not going to use military strategy. I'm coming straight to you. You are the only help. And here's what he believes about God because he knows him. He's worshipped him. Really worshipped him. He says, God, you don't have categories of easy and hard. God, a million people, oh, that's going to be, that might be a little bit too much even. No, he doesn't think that way. 300 chariots, 100 maybe, 300 God on top of the million, come on. No, he doesn't say that. You know what he knows because he's worshiped God? He knows who God is and what he can do, and he's banking his life on it. And God, I want you to help me. God doesn't have a category of easy and hard. God is not limited. He's not restricted because of what you have or what you don't have or who you are, what you can do, what you can't do. Let me ask you, do you have that kind of faith? See what I said? Seeking produces relying. Listen to what he says. Oh, Lord God, we rest in you and in your name. In the ESV, it says, oh, Lord, we rely on you. See what he says? Worshiping God, knowing God, making him preeminent means that I don't have to go anywhere else. I don't trust anything else. I'm going to trust God. That's where I'm turning in my life. See, that's where you and I need to be. We need to worship God and let it lead to reliance on God. How you, have you ever felt like Asa did on that day? Have you ever looked at the situation? Have you ever looked at what's outside of you, external to you? You look at that and you say, that's impossible. That'll never come about. That'll never happen. How do you face those situations? What does your faith say? What does your worship say? Are you still going to seek God when it looks impossible? When it looks over your head? When your bank account can't cover it? And you don't have enough money? 
How, I, how is it going to work out? Can you do it when it looks like the person that you love and you've witnessed to and you're talking to them forever, they're not getting any more receptive. They're not any more close to receiving Christ as Savior. Do you just say, ah? Or do you know God and worship God and say, Lord, this friend of mine, this family member, they're not any harder for you to bring to repentance than anyone else. Because there's none like you. There's none like you. What happens when you're facing 300 chariots and the power is too great? See, he says this, seeking plus relying equals resting. But let me flip the equation over. No seeking, no relying or trusting or dependence, no resting Chapter 15 and verse 19 reads, And there was no war, remember, rest, no war until the 36th year of his reign. So the first time in the middle of rest, he has a big, huge war that there's no way he could win. But because he seeks God and worships him, and because he trusts God and relies on him, they win a battle that is impossible to win. Amazing. It must have been a story that was talked about for years upon years. Toward the end of his reign, a second battle comes. Oh, but this time it's different. Years have passed. Can I be exact? If you look at the chronology, 20 years have gone by. And this time, a smaller battle by far in comparison between him and Israel, his own brothers and <laughs> Hebrew brothers up north, and he, they've got this guy, Bashah, and Ben-Hadad. They've got them, they're helping the north, and they're going to gang up on Judah, and they can't handle both forces. So you think the Bible's going to say in the chronicled story at the end of his life is, this guy's been so great, he's going to do the same thing. He's going to go to God, and he's going to say, oh God, we can't handle this. There's too many, there's two, two, battle, two uh, military threats coming at us at once. What are we going to do? But he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do it at all. In fact, right before chapter 16 starts, it says that he had been worshiping God and seeking him so much that they'd put a lot of people and things they'd given gold and silver and they had it in the temple and it was sacred gifts. That's the term, sacred gifts. And they had given it to the Lord and it was in the temple. But you know what he does this time? He does, listen, I looked at it. I read it multiple times. He does not pray. He does not go to the temple. He does not worship. He doesn't seek the Lord. None of it. None of it. The only reason he goes to the temple for is to steal money from God. The little phrase, silver and gold, is used three times. Once at the end of chapter 15 and twice early in chapter 16. He went into the treasuries of God, dedicated money to the Lord, and he took the money, made a treaty of the guy that was going to attack him, got him to switch allegiances, gave him money that was God's money to use him to help him win the battle. It was a political mover, maneuver and a financial maneuver, and it was stealing from God. How did he get there? The guy that was top tier of the kings in Israel, only two like him in Judah. God said he was so great. He had done so much, so good for so many years. How did it come to this? Let me tell you this. Beware. The warning is clear, is it not? 
that there isn't a time in our life, no matter how long we've been saved and how long we've been coming to church and how long we've been reading the Bible, there is not a time when you can stop seeking and you can stop relying. There's not. So we don't get older and take it easy. We get older and go stronger at it. You know why? As much as we can. You know why? Because we listen to Ace's story and we realize that could be me. I don't want to be someone who starts well and finishes lousy, do you? But Asa did, and he took God's money. The first messenger that came to him, if you read chapter 14, is, I mean, chapter 15, is Azariah. Remember what I told you? Azar, help in Hebrew. The prophet's name who comes after he asked God for help was Azariah. And the prophet's name means God is my help. God put that together, right? Because he wants him to realize. After it, he says, you keep, you keep seeking God. You, seek ask, you keep asking God for help. You keep putting God first and going hard after him. And as long as you keep doing that, you'll never have war. You'll never have problems. And for a long time, he did. But it ran out for him. And so a second seer is sent to him. And this seer's name is Hananai, and it means in Hebrew, God is gracious. Why would someone after 20 years go back on all they believed and all they had done? How does it happen, Pastor Walker? How? I don't want that to be that person. You know what it is? Read verse 8 of chapter 16. He sends the seer to him, and here's what the message from God was. Was not the Ethiopian and the Libyan army a huge multitude? Did they have a lot of chariots? And I delivered you out of their hand. You know what God's saying? Don't you remember how gracious I've been to you in the past? Don't you ever, have you, have you stopped rehearsing the stories of my grace, Hanani? Have you forgotten? We would say today in 21st New century New Testament language, have we stopped thinking about what Jesus did that he sacrificed? Have you forgotten about the cross? Have you forgotten what it's all about? He says, see, that's what happens. That's how people go from the first battle response to the second one. That's how Asa landed there because he got used to God's goodness. He got used to the rest. He got used to having everything so great. And he thought in his mind or he began to think and it came out in his life that he really didn't need God. He thought he could do it on his own. Do you ever get there? Oh, I would never do that, Pastor Walker. Okay, did you read your Bible at all this week? Did you do it three or four minutes just to get it done so that you said that you could do it and have an easy conscience as a Christian? Did you pray much at all this week unless it was for a meal or emergency? See, those are the real things. And he didn't do any of those in his second response. He only went to the temple to steal. Steal from God. Look what the Bible says. At that time, Hananiah 16.7, he came to Asa and said to him, and circle it because it's used twice, cause and effect, watch the because. Because you have relied, there's our word. See, he isn't seeking God anymore. And the minute you stop seeking God and worshiping with all your heart, your reliance on him will change. Now you rely on yourself. You start relying on others. 
You have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God. And because of that, the king of Syria has escaped from your hands. And then he reminds them of the past grace in verse 8. And then he says these startling words that we want to finish with tonight. For the eyes of the Lord, King, New King James, run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong. Do you see what that means in the context? See, you lost the worship war and now you're going to start going downhill. You're going to have all kinds of other wars. You know what God's strength is? Strength in your battle. Strength to win. Strength to overcome. You're going to lose that. You're going to lose it, he says. Because he's looking for someone who just doesn't appear to be spiritual, doesn't appear to worship him. Someone who does more than just show up to the church or read their Bible or feign those things. He goes, I want to know on the inside, who, really, who are you really? I want to know if you have a whole heart or you have categorized or cut off and divided. See, God has this part, but this part is mine, and this part is this, and this part is my job, and this part. See, I've cut it up in pieces. And God says, no, 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 I don't want that. I want your whole heart. I want all of it. And that's what God's eyes are looking for. Not major talent, not incredible abilities, but a heart that's whole and totally for God. And God calls this, listen, when you don't give God your whole heart, you know what he thinks of it? He thinks it's foolish. You have done foolishly. In other words, there's no wisdom in it. Can I tell you this? Listen, because I, I, all the time, Let me tell you this, sin is stupid, is stupid, it absolutely is. You stop worshiping God, you start relying on your own, let me show you how it looks in the story, how stupid it is. When you worship God and seek him, you can beat a million man army with 300 chariots, knock it down a whole bunch of notches to a small, a, a, a battle far less than that, and you think that you don't need him. Foolishness. Isn't it foolishness that we could wake up and go day after day and not really think that we need him? That we can go to a secular educated school, we can go to a secular job where the vast majority of people don't know God and we don't have to be ready for any of it. We don't have to start our day with worship. We don't have to be on our knees. We don't have to tell him how much we need him. God, I rely on you today to do what is right no matter what cost. And we think foolishly That we can handle it without him. Without him. It's foolish of it, isn't it? We don't rely on him. See, the breakdown of our worship is the breakdown of our trust. And we think that we can do it ourselves. Proverbs 28, 26 is a verse I repeated to my children. To they're probably sick of it. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. You think you can handle looking at the internet when no one else is around, you're a fool. If you think that you can have movie channels and have all this stuff that's on them and it'll never affect you, you're foolish. If you think that you can do all that and that won't change your worship and your dedication and your wholeheartedness for God, foolishness. And it's, it, I hate to say it, it's stupid that we would put ourselves in those positions. 
and allow our children to do things and go places. And it's foolishness. It's foolishness. See, the vertical is he didn't seek God. He didn't rely on God. He lost the rest and had wars. Maybe that's what you're experiencing tonight. Maybe that's why you have the wars going on in your house, in your marriage, perhaps in your heart and life. But you know, you'd think after that that he'd turn it around. He got the message from the seer. Did it change? Look at verse 12 and I close. And in the 39th year, the year before he died, he became diseased in his feet. That is a Hebrewism metaphor. It means he had a sexual-oriented disease. I don't know what happened. It doesn't say or explain it. But it may be just a symbolic thing of his spiritual adultery where he had to try to have God and other bales or whatever else he was depending on, like Syria, in his life. In fact, it says that he made a deal with Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad, Ben, is always the word son of. Benjamin, son of my sorrow, Ben-Hadad. Hadad is the formal name for the god Baal. The guy he was brokering a deal with for a victory was the son of Baal. That's where Asa had got to. And let me tell you this. The seer came to him and preached to him like I'm doing to you tonight. It went in one ear out the other. The guy that loved God in the Bible. So much so that he got a disease and it was... Whatever the disease was, it was taking out his life. And here's what the Bible says. He got so ingrained on not relying and seeking God anymore. It says this, that even though it was severe and he knew it was, I would say this, it was so beyond any doctor, even though the Bible says he sought the physicians and not God, he still wasn't seeking him. He was a rebel inside. He knew he should. He knew he had. But he didn't. To his death, he didn't. And even though it was severe, it says, he didn't seek them, the Lord. He sought the physicians to no avail, and he lost his life. Ah, see, vertically, it says this. He never sought God. I'll throw in one little verse. At the end, it says, not only did he not seek God, and God was going to take his life, But it says this, he started persecuting some of the people and treating them cruelly. See our lesson in 1 John? So when things went wrong vertically, he started treating people. He was the nicest guy, the best guy in the world. And that same guy starts being rude, mean, and violent to people under his realm. Why? Because he was still angry at God. How does it happen? That's where it can go when we stop doing what should be first. And that's worshiping God. Can I tell you, 21st century, Hamilton, New Jersey, the eyes of the Lord are still looking. They're still looking. They're still looking, and they're looking around at everyone at Faith Baptist Church. And you know what he's looking for? He's looking for men and women and young people who will have a whole heart for God. Not part, not some, not even most. A whole heart for God. That's what he's looking for. Question is, when his eyes run to your heart, what is he seeing? Let's pray. Ah, Father, worship matters. It really does. It matters most. 
Because if we haven't got that war right, we haven't won that war in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, we're going to have war. We won't be able to find the peace, the shalom. Because if we don't have shalom on the inside, we won't have it on the outside. Oh, Father, help us to see tonight. Your eyes are looking at us. May our eyes look to you. You are our czar. You are our help. We turn to you. Big battles, little battles, and every battle in between. We look to you. There is no help outside of you. And you can handle anything that we face. May we exalt you and magnify you by seeking you and trusting you and relying on you in everything that there may be no question in our lives, whether it's individually or as a church, who we worship is. God, help us the more we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.